Well, I decided that during this time of Advent, I would do these Romans passages. And part of it has to do with what Advent represents. Advent is about the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And it's characterized by waiting. It's characterized by the fact that we've been betrothed to Jesus, but we're waiting the consummation of that marriage. That we've been promised the resurrection of the dead, and we've received the Holy Spirit as a gift that brings life to our mortal bodies, but we're waiting for the resurrection. We've received the promise that one day God is not going to do away with the earth, but renew the earth. That creation itself, though, is groaning, waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. So it's this time of tension, and we're pulled tight between promises that are partly fulfilled, and we experience and taste some of their fulfillment, but we're also waiting for the full fruition of all of those promises. So it's a time of waiting, it's a time of suffering, and it's a time characterized by the need for hope. The people of God should be a people of hope. And for all those reasons, I thought this section of Romans would be important. I don't think we've done Romans in a couple of years. Kelly probably remembers the last time we did it. Okay, it's been a long time, 16 years ago. We may, we may pull Romans back out and do, go through Romans again. We haven't done it in a while. Uh, but I definitely wanted to lean into these verses because I think they represent something that sometimes the church is missing. So again, let me lean into this by asking some questions. Where in your life do you feel this pinch of the not yet of God's promises? How often are you at a loss as to what to do in circumstances in your life or in the life of somebody you love? Where in your life do you feel weak or foolish or puny or just sort of insignificant? What circumstances in your life or the life of somebody you love are just kind of an agony to you? And to them. And yes, you know God loves you, and it's wonderful, and you have joy because of that, but you also have a lot of pain. Where does that go on in your life? Look at the church. Look at the church in America. I think there's a lot about the church in America to be sorrowful about. So, how do you, what do you see when you look at the church? Because we can be grateful for our own church life, but we're not just us, we're a part of a large body. And where do you see? The body of Christ failing and not living up to the gospel promises. I think Paul is addressing exactly that. And if I would title this with a title, I would just say called to lament. The people of God are called to lament. Yes, we're called to rejoice. But we're also called to take up a calling of lament. And so I want to look at how these verses Uh, Address that. And to do so, I just want to do a a little Bible survey, as I often do. I want to back up and remind you of what the scripture teaches us about the calling of humanity. Why are we here? Why did God create the world and put us on it? God made Adam and Eve, and therefore us, their descendants, to rule with God over God's good world. He shows Adam the world and says, I want you to rule over this. Walk with me. Learn from me, trust me, and we will together rule over this good creation. You can see a small picture of this and of how seriously God means it when he says, I want you to work with me 
in taking care of my world. When God says, Adam, I want you to name the animals. It kind of seems insignificant to us, but it's really big. God decides whatever Adam names the animals, that will be their name. That's a sign that God really wants the descendants of Adam and Eve and their contributions to what he does to matter. He really wants to give us the reins of some things. And we need to get that in the background of our verses for tonight. We need to get that in the background that God created us to rule with him. And that's where he's bringing everything. God doesn't scrap that plan. The picture in the book of Revelation is of the people of God in the renewed world that God made, ruling with God and taking care of the world he made with him. God never, ever alters that purpose. But sin complicates it. Human rebellion changes everything. Now people rule selfishly. People rule for their own glory. People rule for their own name. They take, they grab, they defend. Instead of ruling with God like he called them to rule. God calls Abraham and he calls him to the same promise. God doesn't say, all right, I'm going to try something else with Abraham. He says, Abraham, the world is a mess. People bring violence and selfishness and sin. Creation is groaning. Abraham, I want you to collaborate with me, and we together are going to reverse this. Obviously, the heavy lifter is God, but God still says, Abraham, walk with me. Learn from me, because you and your family are going to be a part of what I am doing to repair the world. And that promise carries forward through all of the scriptures. Think of Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. He, he talks about the grandeur of God. Then he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? But Psalm 8 goes on to emphasize the fact that nevertheless, you have delegated to him the rule of your creation. That thread runs all the way through scripture and right into the verses that we're looking at. God wants his creatures to rule with him over the world that he made. So Paul is speaking in these verses specifically of that call. In fact, I want to suggest that we are called to lament. All right, maybe I can change the title. Called to lament. Because lament is part of what God is doing to use us to repair his world. And that's where this theme that we looked at two weeks ago of suffering comes up. Paul says in the earlier verses, we will rule with him if we suffer with him. And is this sort of like, oh yeah, you can rule with me, but you need to pay your dues a little. Okay, that's not what's going on. It's because suffering is a key part of what it means for God's people to be a part of his repair of the world. Again, look at human rebellion and think of the people in scripture that are called to some kind of rule and look at their lives. Joseph, he has a dream sent from God that says, Joseph, you are going to rule. Your family's going to bow down to you. You are going to be super important. And it turns out to be true, but not before Joseph is sold into slavery is cast down into prison. Part of how God uses Joseph to repair the world is to allow him to experience that suffering first. Consider Moses. Moses feels this righteous calling from God to set his people free, but he spends 40 years preparing for that calling by wandering in the wilderness, where he will wander with the children of Israel after that. 
Moses suffers before he enters into the glory of his rule and his reign, his leadership over Israel. David was called to be king of Israel, as we've seen in Samuel. But David wanders in exile. He's on the run. He suffers misunderstanding, false accusations, homelessness, the kidnapping of his family before he comes into the reign that God has intended for him. This is the biblical pattern for God's repair of the world. And it is the biblical pattern for God's future rulers. The Lord Jesus Christ's whole earthly ministry was one of exile, anonymity, and rejection. And he willingly entered this because he knew with the Father that this was what it would take to repair the broken world. To enter into the brokenness of the world. To enter into the pain and the sin of the world. And notice, here's the important thing for us a little bit later. He seemed to be foolish. He seemed to be wasting his life. Insignificant. A failure. The most powerful leaders of the world never heard of him. And remember what we said two weeks ago. The cross was Jesus' glory. The cross was Jesus' glory. Now, I want to emphasize that the cross didn't feel glorious. And it didn't look glorious to anybody watching. But it was indeed glorious. It was the glory of God because on the cross, the character of God is manifest. Father, forgive them no matter what they've done to me. They do not know what they're doing. His people are called to follow the same pattern, not because God likes suffering, but because that's what it takes to be a part of the repair of what is wrong with the world. I've always have you ever noticed this when uh, Saul, Paul is called. He has his experience on the Damascus Road. He's blinded. He's in this house and God appears to Ananias and says, I want you to go and tell Saul, you know, heal him and baptize him and. Um, And notice what he says. And this is an Acts. um, It says, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Wow. He's going to rule with God. He's got this task and this calling. But notice what he says next. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, Paul, in a unique way, took up. This mantle of ruling with God, of ruling with Jesus, of bringing Jesus healing of the world uh, to the Gentiles. And that required suffering. That required the suffering that he experienced. Paul was collaborating with God. He was working with God. But to heal the world is costly. And we're called to be a part of healing the world. Later, Paul says this in Colossians 1.24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. See, he heard that call. There's a lot you're going to have to suffer for my name. And he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, Paul is not saying that he's suffering to atone for the sin of the church. He's saying that he's taking up his calling. With the Messiah Jesus. And that means taking up suffering. Because the world is in sin and pain. And we're called to bear that suffering with him. 
This is why Paul says we will rule with him if we suffer with him. In order to repair the world, Jesus took on suffering. And in order for us to be partners with God, with him in repairing the world, we will take on suffering. We will take on that suffering. Now, these verses are stupendous. Uh, I've been stewing in them for about a month now since we've been doing this. And probably many people in the room have them memorized. So I'm not going to go line by line tonight, but I want to draw out a couple of things. One of the things I like to do, and I would encourage you to do this when you read Paul's letters especially, is I like to take three different color highlighters. And whenever it talks about God the Father, I like to mark that in one color. And whenever it talks about Jesus and what he does, I do it in another color. And of course, with the Holy Spirit, I do, it, do that in another color. The reason is because the scripture is very clear and specific about what the Father does and what the Son does and what the Holy Spirit does in our salvation. And we're called to know God, just not God generically, but God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the middle of this verse, we see this stupendous thing. We're going to baptize some people in a little bit. When a person believes in Jesus and is baptized, God the Father unites that person to the Son. And the Son, the Scripture says, Jesus says, is in the Father. And the Father and the Son. And He gives them the Holy Spirit. So that when Jesus says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's not just saying, as Dallas Willard said, get them wet and say these words. He's saying, you are going to be immersing them in the triune life of God. You are making them a part of the family that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are now united to God through the grace of Jesus. And so I want to look in these verses at what it says that the Father does, and the Son does, and the Holy Spirit does. Does that make sense? And then I want to say something perhaps controversial. So um, first, let me just mention what it says about us, the people of God. It says that we are saints. And we need to rehabilitate that word because it just means people who are rescued and set apart for God's purposes and his purposes alone. It's used, that word is used of items in the temple, like a, like a serving vessel that was washed and set apart for temple use only. You couldn't use it for your potluck. It was only for the temple use. Paul has said that we are now, he says, we are called, those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That verse that it says, those who love God, I think Paul is speaking about the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. I think Paul is saying that the gospel of Jesus enables us to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That Israel, who is unable to do so, the people of God have been enabled to do so. It says we are called according to his purpose. What that means is we, God has a purpose. He wants his people to rule with him over his creation. We are called according to that purpose. We have this vocation in life. We are chose, his chosen instruments for the repair of the world. And then he also says that Jesus was to be the firstborn so that there would be many siblings, many brothers and sisters in Christ. So first let me mention what it says that the Holy Spirit does. Remember last time I spoke about this, it says that creation itself is groaning. That I don't know if that means the second law of thermodynamics or whatever, but creation itself is not at ease. 
Creation longs, it groans as a woman in labor for things to be set right. And then Paul said that the people, we groan because things aren't right in our lives, in the world. But the remarkable thing in these verses that we read tonight is that it says that the Spirit of God groans too. The Spirit of God inside the people of God groans. Paul has said that the Spirit gives life to our mortal bodies. That for Christians, he gives us the gift of his Holy Spirit and that gives life to our mortal bodies. These bodies that are headed for death, he gives that strength to us. He has said that the Holy Spirit guides the people of God just as the Spirit guided Israel in the wilderness. He has said that the Holy Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. And what that means is not that you no longer think like you used to, but now the Spirit will say, well, yeah, that's your habit of thinking or doing or acting, but this is my heart. Not to defend yourself, but to be kind in return. Not to just look out for yourself, but look out for who you can love. That's what it means that the Spirit gives us the mind of Christ. The Spirit testifies with the people of God that we are sons of God. That we belong to the Father of our Lord Jesus. But in these verses here, he says that the Spirit bears the burden of our weaknesses. I won't get into the geekiness of the grammar, but it's this word that means to come alongside and to take up with. We're weak. We often don't know what to pray. We often don't know what to do. But Paul says the Spirit of God sees that. And because he's in us as a gift, he takes up that confusion, that anxiety of not knowing what to do. And not only that, but it says that the spirit groans with inarticulate groans. He takes what's in your heart that you don't know what to pray. He gathers that up and offers it to the father. And do you know what? That pain, that confusion, that you don't know what to pray, God uses that as a part of fixing what's wrong with the world. See, Paul wants to encourage us. Paul wants to encourage people who feel like they're failures or feel like, man, I, you know, this is great. I'm a Christian. I love God. But boy, there's some things that are a mess. And he's, he wants to encourage them that, you know what? You are right in the center of what God is doing. What does it say about the father? It says that the father adopts us through the ministry of Jesus, through his death through his resurrection, through his ascension to the Father's right hand. When we believe in him, the Father adopts us into his family. The the Father brings us with Jesus into his household and feeds us in his household. In these verses here, it says that he who searches the hearts, it's speaking here of God. God searches hearts. We often presume that we can search hearts. This is an error in life, right? We often think that we know what somebody's intentions are. We don't. We might guess, but it is God who searches hearts. And it says that God searches our hearts because the Spirit is gathering up these groans and offering them to the Father. The Father hears. So we groan, the Spirit prays inside of us, and the Father hears. And then this is the... This is the confusing thing. We're all familiar with God works all things to the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I want to suggest a slightly different translation. 
that for those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes, God collaborates with them in every good thing. And the reason I do this is because that word that is used there, it it sounds like it means all things work together for good, that all things are doing the action. But it's this word that is applied to God. And every other place Paul uses this word, he says, we're co-laboring with God. And I believe what Paul is saying here is those things that we do that seem weak and, and it's kind of pitiful compared to what the world has. God is saying the script. Paul is saying that God, even in those small things, is collaborating with us to bring about his healing of the world. Paul said this in Corinthians when he says, listen, guys, my preaching, I'm not a great preacher. I'm not eloquent. I'm not like these other super apostles. But here's the thing. Through this foolishness of preaching, through my kind of stumbling presentation of what God has done, the power of God is manifest. And so I want you to consider the when you meet with your home group and sometimes it's awkward or your efforts to love and serve somebody or your efforts to tell somebody the good news about Jesus that just seem to fall flat or that don't don't seem to be going anywhere. The scripture says that God, the father is collaborating with you. And those things that seem small and insignificant, God is working with the faith of his people to bring about his purposes. And then finally, those verses there at the end that we all often take to be about salvation. For those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, it goes on and on. I want to suggest what this is all about. And if you read this through this whole passage of Scripture, what this is all about is our calling. Remember, he said we'll be glorified if we suffer with him. And he talks about how we're groaning and how God is collaborating with us. Notice what it goes on to say that his purpose in all of these things was what? To conform us to the image of his son who suffered before entering into his glory. Who went right into the heart of the pain and the brokenness of the world and took that up. And that his death and his resurrection were a part of his repair of the world. God has always planned for his people who are saved by grace, who are saved as a total gift of God's mercy, would be people who look like Jesus, who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief because he didn't shy away from our grief. And he's called us to enter into the world's grief. Amen. God's always intended for his people to be cross-shaped, Jesus lookalikes, in their calling to be a part of his repair of the world. Finally, the son. We've said a lot. Jesus died for our sins. Later, he's going to say he's interceding with the father. Again, I don't know if you have somebody in your life that when they say they're praying for you, it really encourages you. Does anybody have people like that? Whether it's a a parent or, you know, a grandparent or something like that. But the scripture says that Jesus is praying for you. You're asleep. Jesus is praying to the Father on your behalf. And the scripture says that, guess what? The spirit is praying for you. I'll take that any day. The, The people that are praying for me are Jesus Christ who died for me and the Holy Spirit who lives inside of me. That's encouraging. That's good news. 
It says that he's interceding at the right hand of the Father. It says that he brings us into the Father's presence. And he is the pattern into which the Father is molding us as he works with us to fix what's wrong with the world. He is what humanity was meant to look like. There's this irony that when, that when Pilate brings Jesus out, what does he say? Latin people, Latin students, what does he say? Eke homo. Here is the man. I think it's another one of those ironic prophecies. This is what the human race was always meant to look like. Trusting and obeying God, laying down their life for others. And that's the image to which his people are being conformed. This is that suffering and glory, suffering and glory pattern that we see in scripture. So let me just end with this. All of us as Christians are doing things that are a part of what God is doing to repair the world. But sometimes they feel puny. Sometimes they feel small. Prayer sometimes just doesn't seem to be enough. Sometimes, as I said, preaching just, I don't know, it doesn't feel it. Acts of kindness and friendship, there's good intentions, but they seem to fall short. The scripture says that God is collaborating with us and he's using those things. Amen. And lastly, and I want to close with this. I said in the beginning, we could call this lament or the calling to lament. The people of God are called to be joyful, full of joy and rejoicing. But the people of God are also called to lament. And here's how I know this. When Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, it's the shortest passage in the whole. It's the shortest verse in all of scripture. What is it? Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? Why didn't he go, praise God, let's go, I'm going to raise him from the dead, you guys are. Because he was lamenting for the brokenness in the world. Yes, he was going to raise him from the dead. But guys, we're on this side of death. And we're going to see, we see right now in the news, in people's lives, a lot of sorrow and brokenness. And the people of God are also called to gather that up. Look at the Psalms. I challenge you sometime to go through the Psalms and count how many of the Psalms seem to have that lament. The people of God are called to be singing those Psalms for the sake of the world. Maybe you don't have a lot of pain, but maybe you know people who do or you know situations that are super painful. Amen. The promise is that God the Father is working with his people in those sorrows, in those brokenness to fix what's wrong with the world. And that work is eternal and will matter forever. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's celebrate some new life in baptism.